Right, so this morning we're looking at a very, very small book. It's called the book of Jude. Now it's interesting, Jude exposed the false teachers who had crept into the uh, fellowship in the church there unnoticed and uh, encouraged the saints there to stand firm and to seek to rescue those who'd been led astray by the false teachers. Now it's interesting, Jude is the only New Testament book which is devoted exclusively to talk about bad and false teaching and error. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is, who is Jude? Now, the New Testament just, uh, just, uh, tells us there's a number of brothers of Jesus. So we find that uh, there was Jude, there was uh, the James, who became the uh, lead leader in the church in Jerusalem. There's Joseph, who also goes by the name of Joses, and Simon, who described as brothers of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, we use the word Jude, but um, Jude could also be Judah or Judas. And you're kind of thinking, well, why did we not call him Judas? You say, Judas Iscariot's enough reason why you would not call him. Like, what lovely godly woman would ever call her son Judas? And so uh, we have there a number of brothers. Also mentioned that Jesus had a number of sisters. So uh, if there's only one sister, there's at least six kids in the family. If there's a group of sisters, it could be even as many as 12 kids that he grew up with. Now, as you seeing um, in the beginning of Jude, he describes himself as the brother of James. And everybody would have known that James was the head of the church in Jerusalem and James was the brother of Jesus. And so it was Jude's way of very subtly letting people know that he was Jesus' brother as well. But did he always think Jesus was good? Do you always see him as the son of God? And we go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, The son of Mary and the brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and our naughty sisters here. So it says there's a large family. Then in Mark uh, 3.20, it says that Jesus went home, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying to each other, he is out of his mind. So that's how Jesus' family viewed him in his early part of his ministry. Then in Mark chapter 3.31, And his mother and his brothers came and stood outside where Jesus was, and they sent for him. And the crowd was sitting around. They said, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside for you. So there's a sense that they were embarrassed. They wanted to take Jesus home and uh, sweep him away. Now in John chapter 7 says this, His brothers said to Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it has a very cryptic thing in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. So you had this sense that they were embarrassed about him. Uh, they were, uh, probably wanted to disown him and uh, separate themselves from Jesus as much as they possibly could. But after Jesus was resurrected, everything changed. Because they realised that Jesus was exactly who he'd been saying the whole of his life. Now we find that uh, there's two brothers, James and Jude. James becomes a key leader in church in Jerusalem. And Jude, his, uh, we find him here as writing this letter as sacred scriptures. Now it's interesting, Jude would be one of the first people to say that his relationship to Jesus, although there's a birth relationship, birth relationships are worthless compared to spiritual relationship. And Jesus puts it very clearly for us in Luke 11:27. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you. But Jesus' response, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And Jude was very conscious. Yes, he is Jesus' half-brother. 
But more importantly, he, Jesus is his Lord, his Saviour, his Master and his King. He was very conscious of the change. Now, Jude's an interesting letter because it's very, very intensely Jewish. It's possibly the most Jewish book in the whole New Testament. Why? Because it assumes that the, uh, the readers of his book will have a very vast and knowledgeable knowledge of uh, all the Old Testament. Because he just picks story after story of uh, different parts of the Old Testament to uh, back his arguments. And he assumes that you know what he's talking about. And he also talks about other Jewish religious writings. And so this is a Jewish letter to Jewish people facing the issue of um, the problem of, uh, of sin in their church. So what problems did Jude actually face? And it's summarised for us in verses 3 and 4. Contend earnestly for the faith, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who turned the grace of God into lewdness. Now lewdness is seen as practised without shame, without any sense of common decency or conscience. Now usually the word lewdness is associated with sexual immorality. But uh, it's also can be associated, as it is here, with brazen anti-biblical teaching. It's where people are denying clear truth. Now Jude probably had both ideas in mind, both the sexual immorality and false teaching being blended together by these teachers. What does it remind you and I of? The battle will never be over. And for you and I as believers, we need to stand up for what is right. And speak up against what is wrong. Even if the rest of the world remains silent, we need to be a rock which that God builds upon. Now Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I am a way. Jesus said, I am the way. And for you and I as believers, Christ and Jesus needs to be the very centre of what our faith is all about. So what's the problem they faced there in, um, in Jude's time? There in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for, with, for their condemnation ungodly people. So what's the first thing they do? There's a number of things they, they do wrong. The first thing is they pervert the grace of God. What does that mean? It is by God's grace. God's free gift is what brings you and I to heaven. When we stand on the door of heaven... And are thinking, you know, will we be let in? There's nothing that you and I have done that gets us through the door. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. Now, sadly, uh, you will find uh, throughout the whole of history, uh, this teaching has crept in where people say, oh, yes, you're saved by God's free gift plus all the good things that you do on top of it. You know, God gets you to zero, but it's up to you to get yourself into positive numbers. And so there's this, always this sense of uh, people saying, oh, you need a bit of good works in there. And sadly, there's a number of churches where this is a struggle for the preacher and they will uh, take people basically off the rails and off the tracks. Now, the second thing which is uh, in this verse 4, and it talks about uh, inner sensuality. And it's interesting. Uh, Sexual immorality and false teaching are often linked together. So when you hear about the, the number of sexual debates we have in churches... You have like conservative Bible believers on one side with a very conservative view of sexual behaviour on one side. And those who are theologically soft will regularly be sexually soft on a number of issues at the same time. The two go hand in hand. And where do we see the, uh, their issue? The third thing that is brought out to us here is they deny our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are people who are quite happy to say Jesus is a great teacher. They might even say he was a prophet or a miracle worker or he's a great religious leader. But the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. He is Master. He is King. And what do these people do? They deny the true nature of Jesus. It is very sad that in more recent times, the Anglican Church has had a number of very famous bishops write books that were anti-Jesus being Lord. And uh, people say, but that guy's a bishop. Surely he must be right. And you say, no. I had an interesting situation of a guy at college who um, was a very gifted evangelist who, no matter what conversation he entered, they finished always with, where do you stand with Jesus? And uh, he was down the south coast and he meets a uh, Sydney Anglican bishop. And the guy starts evangelising him. And the man says, I I don't know if you realise, but I'm a Sydney Anglican bishop. And he said, but I do realise one thing, is Jesus the Lord of your life or not? And he was not going to be uh, taken aside by this guy using the term bishop. And this very problem they had, that's the third thing they had, the idea of um, the mastership, the lordship of Christ being denied. Then the next one, number four, yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams. And uh, I worked with a guy who um, uh, was a, a trained social worker and uh, he was deciding that he would research dreams. He said, I feel a real conviction that I want to use dreams as a way of evangelising, ministering to people. That you know, They'll tell me their dreams and I'll, I'll, I'll give them words of insight to what their dreams mean. And I thought, That's great, but it might have been better to tell me what the Bible means rather than their dreams means. Because when people say, I'll interpret your dreams, it's an excuse for them to just go off on any track they like to in life. And this is one of the things that these people were doing. They were talking about the deep spiritual. They say, I have this extra Bible knowledge more than what you have because I can do this secret stuff. And what does, uh, what's the, response, the result of that? Number five, they defile the flesh. In other words, they live life that is sexually immoral. And then number six, they reject authority. And the very first authority they reject is the authority of Scripture, of the Bible being our authority to live by. The next one they go to, it says there that um, in verse 8, that they blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the angels. And then uh, the next point in the verse 9 is very clear. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So Jude is very, very clear and said, there is one true te- teaching. If people start sidetracking on other things, Step back and remove yourself because those people are false. So what's the next thing? Number nine. It, it says that uh, these people in verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And I must say that is very true. Whenever I've talked to people who um, really think they're theologically gifted, uh, who deny Christ, it doesn't take me very long to realise that their knowledge is incredibly immature and the arguments are incredibly poorly thought out. But it does take a while to be able to answer them. What's number 10? And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoned animals, understand instinctively. In other words, they live by their gut feelings. They'll say things not like, this is what the Word of God says. They say, oh, I think I personally feel this way about this topic. Because it becomes about them 
not about Jesus. What's the 11th issue? He describes there that they are like hidden reefs at your love fests, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And sadly, it implies that these people were seen as church leaders or set themselves up to be authorities in the church. And they were quite happy to get all the money in the world they could possibly get from what they did. I remember meeting a lovely minister who was not a Christian and he was quite upset that his church expected him to preach from the Bible. He said, I've matured myself way beyond the Bible. I've got so many other topics I'd like to speak to. And I'm thinking that's the road of darkness. Or another minister I met who said, uh, I really think the churches should be about dolphins because dolphins are dying and we should do everything we possibly can in the world to save dolphins. So in church each week, he give dolphin talks because he wanted to encourage people to love dolphins. And you're kind of thinking, well, what church is that? What are they? Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They're like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. What are they? There are people who are not tied to the Bible. They're not tied to the love of Jesus. They're not tied to prayer. They're not tied to God being Lord of their life. It means they're just wandering through life and their life is pointless. It goes nowhere. And the next part says there in verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. For they have committed in such an ungodly way. So he uses ungodly three times. So he's really emphasising these people are really leading you astray. Don't go near them. Now in verse 15, they are told to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. So there's this really strong sense that they need to be brought to repentance and conviction. I remember I had a friend of mine who was an evangelist had been invited to a country church to share the gospel. And I very powerfully proclaimed, this is how you find Jesus as the Lord of your life. And at the end of his sermon, a very old-fashioned thing, was an altar call. He called people to come forward who'd like to become Christians. And the first one up was the minister. And he said, oh, it's great that you're here to pray with me for the people. He says, no, no, I'm here to ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Who's ever heard an evangelist converting the minister of the church who invited him? God does marvellous things. God can change anybody's life for him. Now the next issue that brought up is that uh, it says, of all the harsh things these ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, they speak against God. So what type of people are they? Verse 16, they are grumblers. They whinge about everything. They're malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Jude very strongly de- describes these people in very clear words. But the thing you've got to remember is that um, they had snuck into the church unnoticed. It's not like there's a big sign on the top of them saying, false teacher. And the hard thing for you and I is that we may be involved with people that, and at times we think, well, something doesn't feel quite right and not know why. But the Bible says you and I are called to discernment for that which is true and that which is false. That is actually one of the things that brought me to becoming Presbyterian all those years ago because I lived in a, and worked in a denomination where there were both false and true teachers all over the place. 
I'd go to a, a minister's meeting and there'd be guys there who weren't Christians who were ministers of local churches and I struggled with that. I know uh, in the past, as in 20, 30 years ago, the Presbyterian Church had its own share of weirdos and I think uh, by the grace of God we have none left who are in an active role leading a congregation. Phil's retired, so we're safe. <laughs> so we have this real sense that we're called to be faithful. We're called to be part of a church which is faithful and we're called to call the church to faithfulness at all times. So let's now turn to the examples because the whole of Jude is absolutely thick with Old Testament uh, imagery and um, Jewish imagery. So the first thing he talks about is Egypt there in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you only fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now it's interesting. It's nearly a throwaway line, but it says it's Jesus who judged and Jesus who saved. And so when we go back to the story there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in that section there of Scripture, Jesus is behind every verse and every thought. So Judas wants to remind them here, Jude wants to remind them here of what happened, what's called Numbers 14. What happened there? God had delivered the people of Israel. They had been in slavery and in darkness and in persecution and in hard times, and they were liberated from Egypt to go to the Promised Land. It was only a 10-day journey. It took them 40 years. Why? Because God said, I'll let you into the Promised Land when you become trustworthy of me. And he said, great, 10 days journey. We should be right with God by the end of 10 days. 40 years later. So what happened? They went out of Egypt to Kadesh Barnea, and on entering the threshold of the entering the Promised Land, the people of Kadesh Barnea, they refused to trust God and go into the Promised Land. Therefore, none of the adult generation who left Egypt actually entered that promised land. What happened? They had experienced God's marvellous deliverance in the Red Sea. They'd heard the very voice of God at Mount Sinai. They had received his daily care and provision by the manna in the wilderness. But what had happened? They had lapsed into unbelief. And they never entered the very place of blessing that God had set aside for them. And they never found the rest of God because of their rebellious attitude. And Jude says, be careful that you do not end up with that same rebellious spirit. The next thing he turns to is the angels there in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position or of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal trains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now it's interesting, if you go through the Bible, there's only two places where angels had described as sinning. The first was their original uh, rebellion in heaven, when uh, Satan fell with a third of the angels. And the second is uh, a cryptic verse in Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about uh, uh, sons of men and, and, and women, of, and, uh, like there's this spiritual connection somehow, that uh, uh, and people have very interesting interpretations of this passage. Now, who were these uh, men? Now, were they angels? Were they uh, godly men? Were they something who were having uh, relationships with women who were ungodly? So it's quite vague in what is there. But uh, so yeah, Genesis six is a controversial passage that allows people to have a long debate about what they think it means. And what does it say? Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, 
that the sons of God, which some people say sons of God equals angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they had chosen. Now, later on, we find that Jude implies that uh, this sin in the next verse is a sexual sin. And the sexual sin we find of the angels is here in Genesis 6. And so the angels here are described as a, a, a bad example for us of saying, don't go down wrong tracks. Don't lead yourself astray. And the third group that's brought up is Sodom and Gomorrah. And there it says in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So how bad was Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Ezekiel 16 adds these extra things about Sodom. That she and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease and did not aid the poor and the needy. So yes, they had sexual morality, they had sexual deviance, but they were self-centred and prideful and did not care about the poor. And so that was the description we have of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they said, don't be like them. Now the next one that comes up is another cryptic one, which is the Archangel Michael in verse 9. But when the Archangel Michael contended with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now every time Michael, the Archangel Michael appears, it's in the context of being ready for battle, ready to fight. Now this is another obscure reference in Jude. Uh, What do we find out about the body of Moses? If we turn to Deuteronomy 34, we find that uh, Moses dies and uh, he's buried. Now, some writers think that it's possibly linked to another book called The Assumption of Moses. Now, a very small portion of that book has survived. And it obviously talks about Moses, and people think maybe Jude is quoting from this book, but uh, we're just making guesses at that point there. Now, what's happened? It's more likely that the devil anticipated that God had other purposes for Moses' body after he died. And the devil tried to defeat this plan by taking Moses' body. So where else does Moses appear in the Bible? In the New Testament, where does Moses occur physically? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah come and speak with Jesus. So if the devil had destroyed Moses' body, he's saying, well, destroyed his body, he can't appear to Jesus. And so it's a sense that uh, the devil the whole time, you can see him plotting all the time to try and take out God. If you read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, what's one of the main things behind it? <coughs> Esther is one of the direct relatives of Jesus. If Esther had been destroyed, from Satan's point of view, then Jesus is destroyed because Jesus is the seed of Esther's family tree. And so you can see the subtlety of, of Satan continually trying to swarth God's plans. Now the next one's an easier one. It's Cain. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Cain had killed Abel. Cain was arrogant about his uh, offering to God and he uh, gave uh, in an inappropriate way. And so the sense of saying, do not be like Cain, but be like Abel. Do not be like the godless, but be like the godly. Now the sixth one is called Balaam's error. Now Balaam is the story that occurs in Numbers 22 to 25 and verse 31. Now during the time of Exodus, Israel advanced into the land of Moab. And when the Israelites came near, King Balak of Moab sought the help of a prophet called Balaam. Now the first delegation from King Balak arrived to talk to Balaam and Balaam was told, have nothing to do with these people. So God's initial words to Balaam were these. 
You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they will be blessed. Yet Balaam twisted his uh, relationship and he tried to work out back doors because he was greedy and wanted the money that King Balaam was offering to him. There's a, a man once offered a church an exceptionally large amount of money if, they'd, they'd, if he could pay to put a gigantic cross on the church. And you kind of think, well, why would he like a cross on the church? Because he'd like to get a wire from the cross to go to his house to use as an antenna. So quite an interesting, quirky thing because the church was quite high. And he was quite upset when the church said no, that they didn't believe in crosses on churches. Why? Because he wanted an antenna. So greed can quite often twist our hearts. Now the next one is called Cariah's Rebellion. Now Cariah's story is found in Numbers 16. And one day he came to Moses and said this, You take too much upon yourself, Moses, for all the congregation is holy. Why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? So what's Cariah's issue? He was trying to reject Moses' authority and leadership. He wanted to be the boss. He uh, didn't want to have uh, Moses tell him what to do. Now the next one's another cryptic one. Enoch, there in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones. Now Jude did not quote Enoch to tell us about something new. But he's reminding us with a vivid description of what the Bible has already taught elsewhere. Now, Jude's quoting of the book of Enoch doesn't mean that the whole book of Enoch is scripture. Uh, what is inspired is the part that he does quote. Now, why is it complex if you're an archaeologist? Because we haven't found the original book of Enoch. But about one or two hundred years after Jesus, which was quite a popular thing, people would write their own religious scriptures. And so if you uh, dig around, there's a Gospel of Peter. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of Book of Acts. There's about a dozen Gospels that were written by other people up to 600 years after Jesus, that somehow Jesus changes all his teachings to this new age belief that they have. And uh, so the book of Enoch was written probably one or 200 years after they've, they've discovered. And uh, he put this quote into it to make sure it makes it authentic. But then he goes off with a whole of quirky teaching that has nothing to do with scripture. So we need, yeah, archaeologists need to be as discerning as anybody about uh, what they dig up. Because sadly... As we have true Gospels, so we had a whole lot of false Gospels. Some like Gospel of Thomas are pretty good. They're not that bad, but they still have errors within them. And so we have Enoch here as a cryptic one being quoted, but what's the fullness of that? We do not know. So what do we have? We have false teachers that are very clear being told to be careful of these people. Secondly, we've been told, here are Old Testament examples of people who lost it who went off the tracks, who got deviated from what is true. Don't end up falling off the tracks as they have fallen off the tracks. And then the last key part that Jude wants to get across to them is the return of Christ. Now it's quite a cryptic verse. So there in verse 17, But you must re remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. The apostles, they said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the visions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now Jude is writing to them and he's implying you are living in the end times. You're living in the last times. And you're thinking, but we're only 30, 40 years away from Jesus. So what does the end times mean for you and I as Christians? 
The end time starts with the resurrection of Christ and ends with his return. We've got to be very, very careful with those who say, oh, the end times are the 1990s or the end times are the last 10 years. And that type of teaching has been around for hundreds of years. And um, I remember when I was going to Bible college, uh, uh, there's some uh, Larry Norman and uh, Randy Stonehill were two very popular Christian thingers at the time. And on the end of one of their, their songs, you could hear them talking quietly to each other about when they thought Jesus was going to come back. And one says, oh, he'll be back within three years. And the other says, oh, no, I think you're wrong. It's going to be at least five. Because that was back in 1970. And of course, that has come and gone. And so where's the end times? The end times is what you and I live in. We live in the time between his resurrection and his return. We live in a world where God is Lord, but we also live in a world which is stained by sin. The two are happening simultaneously. So the last thing I want to draw your attention to is the positive things about Jude. Jude has a lot of things that he says to believers. You know, stand firm in the faith. Hang in there. Be faithful. Be godly. Now, Jude had two major concerns. His first was, don't be led astray by false teachers. And he says, take initiative and contend for the faith and help those who are being led astray. So then in verse 3, Beloved, although I am very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. He says, I've been sidetracked by these false teachers. But hang in there with good teaching. Then in verse 20, Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. So how do we deal with those who struggle? Have mercy, be people of love, be people of grace. Um, it's easy to get a massive argument. What do arguments do? They create an amazing amount of heat and really have any light. So what are we called to do? Those who are being led astray, graciously lead them into truth. Pray for them, love them, care for them, give them mercy, give them grace. So they're in verse 3, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by, uh, by, by faith. So there's this real strong sense that we are to be loving and to be gracious and to be caring. It's easy to think we've won an argument. But if you've lost a friend, then no argument has been won by either side. And he finishes with these great words, which could be assumed by themselves, what's called the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To our only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. This is a real sense that even in the middle of debates, remember that God is your rock. In the middle of conflict, remember that God is in control and that he will never let you go. Jude is a controversial book because it is very confrontational about that which is sin. But most importantly, it calls you and I to holiness. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, give us the grace to love those who are false. Father, let us be prayerful, loving and supportive, knowing that your desire is that nobody be lost, but all will be found safe in you. Father, may we always speak clearly your, your words and be people who stand firm on our faith in you. Amen.